So, Rachel, I was thinking about crossovers. Oh, Miles, I am so sorry. I know, I know, but Axis kind of put those wheels in motion, and it took me back to Avengers vs. X-Men, and I was thinking, how come everyone forgot that Cyclops had already been a Phoenix host? Well, he hadn't. But he had, though. In the X-Men and Teen Titans crossover, he briefly hosts the reconstituted Phoenix Force. Oh, honey, no. What? What? Well, first of all, that wasn't exactly the Phoenix Force. It was sort of a patchwork Dark Phoenix that Darkseid cobbled together from residual energy. Okay. But the important detail there is that it's also a different Cyclops. Wait, what? Well, the Cyclops in Avengers vs. X-Men is vanilla 616 Cyclops. The Cyclops in the Teen Titans crossover, in fact, all the characters in the Teen Titans crossover, are Earth-7642 versions. Earth-7642. Right. See, I think its official name is Crossover Earth, and it's the multiversal designation for the Earth where the Marvel and DC characters share a single universe. There might be a couple other properties thrown in as well, but it's definitely at least those two. So, Amalgam. No, Amalgam is Earth-9602. How's that work? I mean, it's the Marvel-DC crossover Earth, isn't it? Well, not exactly. Amalgam was a byproduct of the Marvel vs. DC crossover event, or DC vs. Marvel, depending on which half of it you were reading. See, there were these two gigantic universe avatar characters called the Brothers, think the Planeswalkers and Magic the Gathering are the big hand in Super Smash Brothers, who, for okay. fairly transparent marketing reasons, decided to get the heroes from the two universes to fight with the vague intent to destroy the universe the fewest net wins. Now, obviously, that wasn't going to happen, so the Spectre and the Tribunal created this weirdo merged universe where every character was an amalgam of two or three Marvel and DC characters. Oh, God. So you've got Darkclaw, who's Wolverine and Batman, Super Soldier, who's Superman and Cap, those are the big ones, and then there are a bunch of smaller ones usually broken into groups like JLX, which is Justice League and X-Men, so there's Amazon, who's Storm and Wonder Woman, Apollo, who's Cyclops and the Ray, Firebird, who's Phoenix and Fire, and so forth. Some of those seem pretty forced. Oh, wait till we get to Dr. Bongface. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 33rd episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. This time we're going to be looking at a one-shot and a miniseries that a lot of our listeners have been asking about. Specifically, the Teen Titans and Micronauts crossovers. And I want to mention briefly that in the second half of this episode, when we're going to be talking about the Micronauts miniseries, some of that is going to involve... Not particularly graphic, but still fairly involved discussions of sexual violence. If that's not something you want to listen to, we would recommend dropping off after the X-Men Teen Titans crossover. Now, I don't know if it's exactly accurate to call them crossovers. In my head, that means a very specific thing, as does event, as does one-shot... Well, they are crossovers. I mean, they're not series crossing over, but they are lines crossing over. They're sets of characters who usually exist discrete from one another, having a shared title or a shared book. In my head, crossover specifically refers to those annoying things where you have to buy a couple issues of, I don't know, X Factor and a couple issues of, I don't know, Moon Knight to get the whole story. Like it's part one and three in one title, part two and four in another. So it sounds like what's going on is that when you say crossover, it's a structural term. And when I say crossover, it's a narrative term. I think so. But I think for the purposes of what we're discussing here, we could really use the language interchangeably because otherwise we're going to become crazy people very quickly. I mean, I feel like what I want to do is just have crossover be any intersection between lines and then we'll just be really specific in our descriptions of the formats. Does that work? So mote it be. Right. So the first one of these is the X-Men Teen Titans crossover. This is in um, September of 1982, and this is not the first Marvel DC crossover. And there had been a Spider-Man-Superman crossover in the mid-70s, but it hadn't really been a big deal event in the way that this was. It hadn't been nearly as highly publicized, for instance. The creative team was pretty all-star. It was Chris Claremont writing, Walter Simonson on art, and actually, interestingly, by this point, Len Wein, who had written Giant Size X-Men number one, was over at DC, and so he was the DC editor on point on the series. Okay, yeah, so there's, there's your crossover point. That's kind of awesome. To me, the two teams seem like a pretty good match, you know? They're kind of the strange, outcasty, very character interaction-focused teams of their respective universes. I will take your word for that. I've got to say, and I feel like we should qualify at this point in general, you've probably read a little more DC than I have. Only My- a little. My DC universe is basically the DC animated universe and Starman, and that's pretty much it. I'm not much past you on that one. I've always very much been a Marvel guy. However, I did do a little research before this episode, so we have some information. That said, listeners, I'm going to screw this up in like at least three places over the course of the episode, so please bear with me if you would like to. Well, actually, we have comments on our posts on our blog for exactly that purpose. Right, and I want to qualify our approaches to both of these in general, because they're cool series, but we are coming into this as 
experts whose knowledge base and frame of reference is very X-Men focused, as is this podcast. So when we're going to be looking at these, we're going to be looking at them primarily from that angle. Again, as in our video reviews, when we look at crossovers, we primarily focus on the X-Men sides of that. That's going to be the case here as well. Although I got to say, these books, they do a pretty good job, and we'll get to more of this later, of kind of cluing in one side of the readership to what's going on with the characters from the other side of the readership. Yeah, Claremont is either writing or co-writing these, so there is definitely no shortage of exposition. Yes, there's words everywhere. We're just drowning in words, and also action figure tie-ins in one case. So, starting with X-Men and Teen Titans, let's place this in continuity. This is September 1982, so this is happening right before the Brood Saga. I think that starts the next month. Kitty was still pretty new on the team. Cyclops was, I believe, still on the team at this point himself, right? Yeah, he was. This was pre-Madeline Pryor. So, the team at the time was Cyclops, Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Kitty Pride, who at the moment was called Sprite, but of course would change her names and her costumes about every 10 minutes. Yeah, she's going to be Ariel in the Micronauts series, but for now, she's Sprite. On the other side of the crossover, we've got the Teen Titans, and they are one of DC's top lines at the time. We mentioned this as kind of not our bailiwick, but let's try to do like a brief overview of who's coming in on the other side. Okay, so the new Teen Titans, I think a lot of people think of them as like the sidekick team because some of the characters on there are sidekicks for other characters. You know, you have like Robin and stuff like that. Really, only about half of them are. What unites them is that they're all teenagers, and with the exception of Robin, they're all a little strange in their own ways. So we have, of course, like I said, Robin, and this is Dick Grayson, the first Robin before we got like the 15 other ones that, that came after him. We also have Raven. Um, she is a half-demon empath who has a psychic soul self that she can kind of uh, control and switch into. Her father's a demon named Trigon. And that, that sounds like a cleaning product or possibly um, a rune from Eternal Darkness. See, it fits perfectly. Man, I love Eternal Darkness. Ah, the fact that that game was not a bigger success is a damn crime. It's true. Then we also have Starfire. Now, she is a princess from an alien race, and she is super strong, can fly, energy blasts, that sort of thing. She also has the ability to absorb languages through physical contact. And when it comes to doing so for male characters, that's typically through kissing them because it's more fun. That's sort of a very benevolent version of Villain Rogue. We also have Changeling. Now, he's mostly been known as Beast Boy. In this arc, he's called Changeling instead, not to be confused with the Changeling character in Marvel who briefly impersonated Professor Xavier and then died back in the Silver Age. Or the fact that people keep on calling Nightcrawler Changeling for no particular reason. Or the fact that they call Morph Changeling sometimes, and for a while it seemed like he was the alternate universe version of Changeling from the Silver Age. It gets very confusing. I actually assumed when someone first called Gar Changeling in this that they were just pulling that out as a random nickname just because I was so used to people doing that to Nightcrawler. It's like the point in Batman and Robin when they don't use Robin's real name for most of the movie, and then he and Batman get in a huge fight, and just out of nowhere, Batman just yells, Dick! (laughs) And you know it's his name, but there's a moment of, wow, really, Batman? Come on, Bruce. (laughs) So yeah, uh, Beast Boy's origin, I love his origin. So he was sick as a child with this weird, rare disease, and so his parents treated him with a serum that ended up giving him shape-shifting powers. Modern medicine, ladies and gents. He was also previously on the Doom Patrol, who are a wonderful team, but that's a topic for another episode. You know, this drives home something I really appreciate about the X-Men. The whole mutant powers thing just completely gets around having to have ridiculous superpower origin stories. It's true. It's just like, you know, they've just got them. Just run with it. Just deal. (laughs) So the last three characters, they don't really do a lot in this crossover, so we'll just go through them quickly. There's Cyborg, who was the son of some scientists who uh, saved him from these horrible injuries he got with cybernetic implants. As opposed to a shape-shifting serum. There's Wonder Girl, whose name is Donna Troy, and as I understand it, is basically the Jean Grey of the DC Universe in terms of how horrifying convoluted and complicated and retconned her backstory is. She's uh, kind of an alternate past younger version of Wonder Woman, but also kind of very much not. So I say, let's not worry about it. Her name is Donna Troy. There she is. And then there's Kid Flash, who is Wally West. The best Flash. Yes, he's the Flash that's in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And Young Justice. Uh, yes, the cartoons. He's also the nephew of Barry Allen, who is the original Flash. The boring Flash. Yes. No, he wasn't original Flash. Jay Garrick was the original Flash. Have I mentioned that I'm an X-Men person, not a uh, DC person? I just really like Wally West and so have deliberately learned continuity around him so I can get in fights about it. Fair enough. Wally that's... West is the one true Flash, and if you say otherwise, we're not friends. That is our team of new Teen Titans who are going to meet up with the X-Men. Let's dive right into the story. So 
The frame story revolves around Darkseid, who, if you're coming from a Marvel angle, is a very, very rough analog to Thanos. He is one of the new gods created by Jack Kirby. Can we get some background on there, Miles? Do you know much about this? I don't know a lot, except that that's where Jack Kirby's best costume designs came in, in my opinion. You have, like, Big Barda, Mr. Miracle, Kalabak, all these characters with lots of big circles on them and head armor things and big shoulder armor and stuff. Darkseid's big thing is basically death and negation of life and also being a scenery-swallowing despot. And wearing a very attractive miniskirt. It's Kirby at his most spectacularly cosmic. And I want to actually digress for a moment to that because this is Walter Simonson doing Jack Kirby, which is one of my favorite combinations. These are two artists who worked in very different but very complementary styles. And the extent to which Kirby has been an influence on Simonson, especially on cosmic stuff, is really evident, and I think actually nowhere more than in in Simonson's eventual design for the X-Men villain Apocalypse. And of course, Beta Ray Bill, the character he created for Thor, is very, very Kirby designed, as is everything in Thor. Kirby was the original artist, and Simonson was the one who, for many people, certainly me, defined the look of that entire part of the Marvel Universe. So Darkseid is talking to a dude named Metron, who is sort of a librarian with a magic chair. He is hooking Metron up with tech to go through a dimensional wall. Now, you would think, I would think, I thought initially that this would be the wall between the DC and Marvel universes, but it's not, is it? No, no. So in this version of Earth, uh, what is it, 7642? Sure. The Marvel and DC characters are just sort of coexisting, which brings up a lot of questions, which probably would take an entire episode to go into, so we won't. The dimensional wall, it's called the source wall, most commonly. And this was a, a concept that was based on a Jack Kirby idea of this wall that separates the source of all existence from the known universe. This series is actually where we first see like the source wall physically represented. This might be me doing the conspiracy pinboard thing. Later on, he says that it's also going to let him get into the realm of imagination itself. Right. So one of the things that we didn't mention about the New Gods is that whole subset of the DC universe is the fourth world. Yeah, fourth world, exactly. So can we reasonably state that the source wall is in fact the fourth wall that he's trying to break through? (laughs) And so there's just Deadpool sitting on top of it, having like little captions that are aware of the fact that he's in a comic. I don't know. I'm just really, really entertained by that. (laughs) Well done. Well done. See, I don't know. I think it might sort of have been intended to be the wall between the DC and Marvel universes because somehow him doing that gives men trying to access he didn't have before to the X-Men. This part is, I gotta say, really unclear. I don't know if we just didn't read closely enough, or if there's some DC stuff that would have made it make more sense, or if it just is unclear. But yeah, I wasn't really sure how what's happening here impacts what happens next. So next, the readers also get access to the X-Men, and we get the classic Danger Room open. Colossus and Wolverine and Nightcrawler are in their Danger Room training. We then see Storm watering a plant with her weather powers. We see Cyclops knocking a bunch of pool balls into the pockets using his optic blast. This is has happened before, and it's something that comes back every once in a while, which is that Cyclops' secondary mutation is cheating at pool, and it's never not delightful. It just seems like a strange way to introduce a bunch of Teen Titans readers to a very important X-Men character, but you know, know, whatever. I kind of like it, and I think what this sets up really well is that the X-Men are not on high alert at this point. The X-Men are just bumming around the mansion doing their X-Men stuff. Kitty's like about to make them a meal and just phases in to, to ask about that. Yeah, and as being the teenager who's really excited about like her first time cooking for everyone. Yeah, so they all end up going to sleep that night and they're visited by a shadowy figure with weird stuff on his hand. And again, this is really unclear because it looks initially like it's Metron. It's wearing Metron's colors. It's got Metron's visual cues, but it's not, is it? It's Darkseid. Because Kitty wakes up and sees dark side and freaks out and at this point everyone's awake they're trying to figure out what's going on well what we know has been going on what we've seen is that he's been reaching into their heads and basically pulling out memories of phoenix now why would an ultimate supervillain like dark side want memories of one of the most powerful forces to ever exist we'll get to that shortly because right now there's someone at the x-mansion door yeah gene gray shows up so that's a weird thing, because this is very much after the well, Dark Phoenix, Phoenix saga. Well, Phoenix briefly just sort of shows up and discorporates. And so the X-Men are understandably freaked out. And the other person who's freaked out is Raven from the New Teen Titans elsewhere in New York. She wakes up from a dream that she was attacked by the Phoenix Force. So are the Teen Titans actually canonically based in New York, or are they in like Metropolis or Gotham or another imaginary DC city and have just been relocated to New York for this crossover? All I know is they live in a big skyscraper shaped like a capital letter T, which seems very structurally unsound. Changeling shows up, and Starfire as well, and she describes her dream. Changeling turns into a sort of version of the Phoenix. And I want to point out that Changeling does this based on... Let me let me actually pull up this description because it's so bare bones. So the description that Raven gives of her dream is, The dominant image was a woman, a goddess, shrouded within a majestic bird of fire. 
And based just on that description, Changeling perfectly visually replicates Phoenix. At which point Starfire goes ballistic and attacks Changeling because she knows about the Phoenix. And this for me was the first part where I started being really curious, like, wait, how do these worlds overlap? How do the Titans know about Phoenix when so little of the Marvel Universe actually does? This also brings up sort of an important Gar point, at least for me, which is that he can take any form, but they're always green. So he's like the impossible man in that regard. Without the purple, yeah. What we go to now is sort of the equivalent of the X-Men Danger Room slash X-Mansion opening where we meet each of the Titans. Right, so they figure that this is serious business and they send out the Titan signal. The main thing that's relevant in introducing each of the characters, for the most part, is just them saying, hey, I wonder what's going on. I am doing a thing. Uh, Is that Robin is actually fighting this guy named Deathstroke the Terminator. The most colorfully attired assassin. It's true. He's got a lot of bright orange going. He's dressed half in bright orange and half in bright blue. Like, he wants to make really, really sure that whichever side of the visible spectrum you're going for, you'll notice him. One of the things I like about both of these crossovers, we have a lot of as-you-know-Bob moments where characters will say stuff that everyone knows. So, for instance, you're a real hotshot, Robin, but against me, a man who utilizes 90% of his brain capacity with the physical abilities to match, you're simply outclassed. Funny you should bring that up, Deathstroke. Do you also have your fear gun and other related accoutrements sold separately? I do, and I'll use them in a later scene in this very story. I hope you explain them then, too, because I might not be in that scene. (laughs) So we see the X-Men checking in with the Greys, Jean Grey's parents, who cannot freaking catch a break. Their daughter dies, and all of a sudden a specter of her shows up. Right, they also got a miserable Phoenix visitation, and there have also been a series of Phoenix-related manifestations at other points that she had had some kind of relationship to. So places like the Hellfire Club. And as the X-Men are looking into Phoenix appearances, Starfire is explaining why she just punched a bird. So Do you she- really need a reason to punch a bird? I hate birds. I hate those freaking things, man. On my planet of, I forgot its name, where my name is Coriander, we punch birds all the time. You know, they're also only like half a step from pterodactyls. As we all know, pterodactyls basically exist in superhero comics to get punched in the damn head. But yeah, Starfire explains that Empress Lalandra of the Shi'ar Empire, when the Dark Phoenix was attempting to destroy the galaxy after wiping out the race of the Tabari, Lalandra put out the all-call to the various cosmic empires saying, hey, there's bad stuff going on, watch yourself, we're doing what we can. I think in general this crossover does a really, really good job mixing the cosmic stuff because the Marvel multiverse is huge. I assume that the DC space stuff, what I know of it, the Rand, Thanagar, all those guys, is is a big, sprawling, many empires fighting, and those integrate very, very smoothly. It makes less sense that all of these superhero teams have been operating in parallel and just kind of ignoring each other for their entire lifetimes, which is the other thing that you're sort of supposed to take on faith in this crossover. But the space stuff is well-connected. Meanwhile, it turns out that Deathstroke the Terminator has been working for Darkseid. Uh, He's sort of Darkseid's man on Earth who's taking care of tasks for him. We do see a a cool look at Darkseid's factory, which is full of these sort of alien monsters called parademons, who I just want Walter Simonson to draw parademons nonstop forever. Right, and Kirby machines? Yes. What's happening here is that Starfire is realizing, well, shit, if the Phoenix Force is back, I gotta take it out, and you guys can either come with me or not. And all she really knows is that it has or had some connection to the X-Men, or someone remembers it having been connected to the X-Men. And so based entirely on this evidence, the Teen Titans are like, okay, let's go take out the X-Men. They go after Xavier, there's a fight, and meanwhile the Parademons show up and capture the Titans, thinking that those are in fact the X-Men. Who are in fact off visiting with the Greys trying to figure out what the hell's going on. I also want to point out that the head Parademon in this is named Ravik, which really, really sounds like it should be Raven and Havoc's amalgam identity. Or their shipper identity on fanfiction.net. So while the Titans are kidnapped by the Parademons and brought to Darkseid, Deathstroke has been sent to the last place where there's Phoenix energy, which is the Butte where Cyclops and Jean Grey totally did it. In case there's any question to this effect, there is a narrative aside informing us in no uncertain terms that Cyclops and Phoenix totally did it on that Butte. So where the original comic before the Dark Phoenix saga faded to black here? No. Yeah, Yeah. I believe the word consummated is involved. Also, I want to point out that we are being very tasteful and not making the obvious butte sex joke. Until you just did. Yeah. (laughs) I regret nothing. The point is... It's funny. Both good guy teams lose and are both brought to dark side. Looking at this, so much happens. This is a double length issue, but even bearing in mind the difference between the degree of concentration of story in 1982 versus now as standards, this is a lot. While I know we're going into some detail here, believe me when I say we could be going into way more. So Darkseid's got everyone in his fortress, right? 
Yeah, and he basically attaches them to a big machine trying to siphon out the Phoenix connections from the X-Men to summon Dark Phoenix. Well, they're attached, in fact, directly to the wall. And then we see more of Darkseid's plan. You remember, Kitty was the only one who woke up when he was going after everyone in the mansion and pulling out their memories. And it turns out this is because Darkseid is basically Santa Claus. Okay, what? So he says, adults deny me, but children know me for what I am. That makes them dangerous and worthy to be cherished. For in their innocence lies the universe's salvation. And in the loss of that innocence, my ultimate victory. Okay, so maybe not exactly Santa, but look, as someone who finds Santa just deeply creepy and off-putting in general, this is a connection that totally makes sense to me. He sneaks into people's homes when they're sleeping. He's functionally omnipotent. He can primarily be seen by children. He straddles worlds of make-believe and reality. Well, then. Wolverine punched him once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Dark Phoenix is in fact summoned, and it's genuinely creepy, and there's a panel of her and Darkseid shaking hands, and there's just this overwhelming aura of, aw, shit. Darkseid Santa has, for Christmas, brought us back a really kind of fucked up fragmentary Dark Phoenix. And they go bugger off to go do presumably terrible things, leaving the X-Men and the New Teen Titans stranded in space. Tied to a wall. Being stuck in space is a problem, but they quickly see a big floating chair. So quickly, what are they saving the world from? Well, we actually don't really know yet, other than the dark side's going to use Dark Phoenix for something terrible. Well, he says he's going to destroy the Earth and make new apocalypse, and I feel like we should disambiguate here really quickly. There's apocalypse, there's apocalypse, and there's apocalypse. So there's Apocalypse, the big blue guy with the fish lips and the A on his belt. He is a Marvel character and an X-Men villain who's going to show up later. Then there's Apocalypse, the homeworld of Darkseid, which is A-P-O-K-O-L-I-P-S, which would also be a really good stripper name. Although I will point out that as we refer to ourselves as experts with the initial E-struck, we really don't have a leg to stand on in terms of making fun of that. Very good point. And then finally, there's, of course, the traditional lowercase Apocalypse, which is, you know, the end of the world. Yes. So the X-Men find the big floating space chair, and Kitty convinces Changeling to shapeshift into a big dragon called Lockheed. Well, first they accidentally teleport away on it because they're sitting on it and she wishes that they were home. And then they pop back just looking completely freaked out and adorable. They're running around being like the adorable kids in this one. They are. And Colossus is being very jealous. Is Kitty into him? I don't know. It's ambiguous, but... You mean into Gar? She's definitely into Colossus at this point. Into Gar. So yes, Changeling turns into a big dragon, carries the chair, and they head off to save the world from Darkseid and Dark Phoenix. I feel like Kitty's making a good boy choice here. Like Kitty has spent her entire tenure in the X-Men at this point angling for a dragon best friend. And here we go. Because this is before Lockheed Proper is in the series. You know, there's turnabout in which Starfire kisses Colossus to learn Russian, which is one of the better sentences that I'm going to say today. (laughs) I think it really is. Um, And everyone else reaches at least temporary misunderstandings before teleporting to Darkseid's lair under Central Park. Yeah, they jump in there and try to fight Dark Phoenix and, of course, are horribly, horribly outmatched. Meanwhile, above them in Central Park, the Philharmonic is playing the 1812 Overture complete with cannons and fireworks. Fights going on or big events going on while that specifically is happening is an oddly specific, at least twice repeated trope. And at this point, Darkseid gives his big villain speech of what's really going on. Complete with helpful diagrams. Yes, he does, in fact, have a big, like, power point style slide on his wall he's gonna have the phoenix fire all of her energy into the center of the earth through a hell pit have it burst out in a bunch of other places and essentially destroy the planet and turn it into apocalypse and then he's going to breach the source wall and take over all of reality and imagination like you do so the x-men try various things as do the new teen titans and ultimately raven and xavier basically hit phoenix with a beam of pure love from the x-men Ah. And since this is sort of an evil-ish simulacrum of the original Phoenix slash Dark Phoenix, she's at this point starting to discorporate, at which point Robin convinces her to absorb the Phoenix bolt she shot into the Earth back into herself, thus saving the Earth and maybe saving herself. And I really love the narration here. She glows star bright as she draws her energy back into her, and for an instant Xavier sees her as she was truly meant to be, a goddess of life. Pure, transcendent, indescribably beautiful. He hears the symphony of power that tempted Jean Grey to ultimate heights and depths. He weeps, he mourns, but he does not relent. Claremont can describe people's feelings about Phoenix forever, as far as I'm concerned. Agreed. At that point, since that's not working, Darkseid then convinces Dark Phoenix. Did we mention there's a lot going on here? You know, we've talked before about X-Men kind of sounding like Mad Libs sometimes. This is like playing nano-fictionary. It's narrative tug-of-war, and I kind of love it. So yes, Darkseid convinces Dark Phoenix to possess Cyclops at this point. Well, to possess a human body. One of the things that we will learn is that when the Phoenix Force shows up on Earth, the first place it goes is Jean Grey, 
The second place it goes is whoever's closest to Jean Grey. Later on, it's going to find Rachel Summers. And if Cyclops is around, whether or not it possesses him, it will usually hover creepily for at least a while. And everything sort of explodes. And eventually, Cyclops is brought down to Earth. The Phoenix heads back to the Source Wall and ceases to be, essentially. Well, the Phoenix gets grounded back into that humanity by the combination of, you know, the X-Men's collective love in concentrated form. Yeah, Nightcrawler actually says... Dark Phoenix was power absolute, evil incarnate, yet she was hollow. Her power and evil were all she had. Perhaps, by merging with Scott, she realized that what she was could never equal what she had once been, and that destroyed her. That basically is how that wraps up. So what do we think about the X-Men Teen Titans crossover? I mean, I think it's a really good what-if story. It is frenetic. Frenetic is a, I think, gentle description for the, the rate at which the plot moves. Yeah, we tried our best to make this coherent and sum it up, but it is a challenging thing to do. Part of the ridiculousness and the freneticness of it is that those things are recognized in the story, too. You know, the characters are rushing to try to catch up and understand what's going on about at the same rate that the readers are. I find that it does a really good job of keeping everybody in character, of kind of distilling them down to their basic traits, because obviously we have a very large cast here. And so as an X-Men reader, I didn't feel really cheated. I felt like all the characters were doing what I expected and wanted them to do. I came into this familiar with one team and with very cursory familiarity with the other team. Like, I knew roughly who all the Teen Titans characters were, But not much about how they interacted, not much about their dynamic as a team, and definitely not much about them as people. And I feel like I came out with a more solid sense of that. I wonder whether a reader coming in who's more familiar with Teen Titans would have gotten the reverse, though. I feel like at this point, I know so much about X-Men that it's hard to see the stuff from the perspective of a newcomer to those characters in that world. And it's worth pointing out that this was supposed to be the first of two crossovers. Um, The second one unfortunately ended up scrapped for a couple reasons, most of which boil down to editorial argument. Yeah, Marvel and DC, as should probably come as no surprise, had a lot of trouble getting along back then. I mean, while they did have a couple of great moments of overlap, this and the JLA Avengers crossover in the mid-2000s, I believe, for the most part, uh, yeah, it's been a struggle to ever get the companies to work together. It's an odd relationship. You see them cross over more again. The Amalgam stuff in the Marvel versus DC is mid-90s, so a decade and change later. I think this is really the one big, good, interesting team-up overlap that happened at least in that era. All right, so the other thing we're going to cover today is the X-Men and the Micronauts miniseries. This was a four-issue miniseries in 84. Unlike X-Men Teen Titans, this is 616. This is Marvel Universe canon. And I want to talk a little bit about the premise of the Micronauts and their background coming in. The Micronauts are a lot like ROM. It's a comic based on a toy license. As with ROM, it was written by Bill Mantlo, who took a very, very bare-bones line and turned it into a long-running and incredibly beloved series. Mantlo was an editor at Writer in Marvel in the 70s and 80s. He actually started out as a colorist, um, moved into editorial and writing. He started out as a fill-in writer and later wrote a lot of really well-known titles. He's best known again for Rom and Micronauts. He also created Rocket Raccoon of Guardians of the Galaxy. He wrote Cloak and Dagger, and there aren't really very many Marvel titles that he didn't write at least one issue of at some point. He left and became a lawyer, and then in 1992, he was struck by a hit-and-run driver while he was out rollerblading. He suffered a irreparable, extremely severe brain damage. His brother, for years, has been trying to raise awareness and collect donations to cover Mantlo's ongoing care, which is incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult to get. Something that I think is worth touching on in this context is that comics are not a stable industry to work in financially. And over and over again, there have been situations where long-term household name creators have had major medical or financial crises and found themselves completely at sea. In addition to donations to Mentlo's Care, if you can, we would really encourage you to donate to an organization called the Hero Initiative which exists basically to serve as a financial safety net for veterans of an industry that really never allowed them to build one. Absolutely. We'll put links to both of those on our website. It's the holiday season. If you're looking for a place to go, Bill Mantlo, Hero Initiative. That's something that we'll definitely be doing this season, and we'd like to see you guys do that as well. Totally. In the meantime, though, Micronauts. So Bill Mantlo was actually the one who came up with the idea of having a Micronauts comic. He, His son, one Christmas, got some of the Micronauts toys, and he talked to Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief at Marvel at the time, and said, hey, I really think we should pursue this license. I want to write this comic. Man, I was a little bit young for the Micronauts toys and also had a weird childhood media-wise. 
But I love the premise of them, which is that the action figures are the Micronauts. They are full size. Yeah, because when the Micronauts are on Earth, they're about the size of toys. And we see that in this series a number of times. The toys, they ran in the late 70s up to 1980. The comic overlapped and actually lasted six years beyond the toy line. Kind of like Rom Space Knight in that regard, the comics were more successful than the toys. Which again, Bill Mantlo's ability to take kind of a bare bones concept and flesh it out into an incredibly, incredibly developed mythos and ongoing story and universe is unparalleled. Seriously. And much like Rom Space Knight, Marvel, even though they lost the license to the main toy line characters, they did retain the rights to the characters they created separately. And we actually have seen some of those characters, including Marionette and Bug, appear in the Marvel Universe later. They even teamed up with Cable at one point. So context-wise, this was in 1984. This was right after the mastermind wedding stuff, after Cyclops married Madeline Pryor and Wolverine failed to marry Mariko Yoshida, but before they left for Secret Wars. Now, New Mutants was also going on at the time. This was right after they got back from Nova Roma, so Magma is still a brand new member of the team. Technically, I think it was just before they were back from Nova Roma, but set just after. Eh, close enough. Story-wise, it opens with us seeing the Micronauts, and as somebody who was not really familiar with the Micronauts at all before reading this, some of them really, really look like toys. There's this dude called Acro Year. You can even see like his points of articulation. Their spaceship is basically a big transformer. So the leader is this guy named Arcturus Ran. He was an explorer from 100 years in the past who came back and found his world taken over by the wicked Baron Karza, who's very central. I've heard Karza described as basically like Darth Vader extra. Yeah, I totally believe that, having read this series. There's also Biotron, who is Rand's robot buddy, who is a dead guy who was resurrected and turned into a ship robot. Oh, I want to do one. I'll do Acroyear, his former king of a planet called Spartak, who sacrificed his world to defeat Karza. Uh, there's also Bug, who we touched on before. He was originally a toy called the Galactic Warrior, but when Marvel realized that the character in the comic didn't really look like the toy, they named him Bug, and that way they owned him. And he is most notable for having exactly the same hands and feet as Nightcrawler. He actually had his own one-shot comic, which uh, is, is kind of impressive. Go bug. There's Fireflight, who's like a little light fire fairy lady who can communicate with this thing called the Enigma Force. I assume that if we're going with these guys are action figures premise, she's a Polly Pocket who just got mixed up with them. It's quite possible. Ended up in the same Ziploc bag, confused everyone. Exactly. And then there is Huntar, who's this guy who is mutated by Baron Karza in his body banks, which sort of modify people into soldiers. Uh, but he rebelled against Karza and joined the Micronauts. And who spells his name as Hunter, but with an A and two R's. Like you do. And then the last member is Marionette, who is the daughter of the deposed previous rulers of the planet Homeworld, where Karza now rules. And who was, I believe, mind-controlled by Karza for some time. Yeah. She's um, very She-Ra. Mm -hmm. So, this story starts off in space. We have our Micronauts doing their Micronaut thing, and immediately getting caught up in a big space fight. And the first thing that happens is that Karza approaches them to team up. Now, I'm not a big Micronauts fan. I hadn't really read much Micronauts before that. But from what I understand, this is the equivalent of Darth Vader showing up at the scrappy rebel base going, guys, I'm in big trouble. I need your help. Pretty much. I mean, Karza's done some truly, truly terrible shit in the series before. Micronauts may be based on toys, but the series is really dark. God, the Micronauts X-Men series is incredibly dark. Like, there's a lot of death, and there's a whole lot of, like, actual straight-up genocide in this miniseries. There really is. And I get the impression that this is kind of the order of the day in the microverse. Yeah, so there's all this chaos going on, and... Bioship finds that the source of the chaos is actually on Earth beyond the space wall. The space wall as distinct from the other space wall. Right. So we should talk a little bit about what the microverse is. The microverse, and there are actually multiple microverses within the oh, Marvel God. Universe. Is there a microverse multiverse? I'm not going to think about Micro multiverse? that. Micro-multiverse? Oh, God. Do they all have, like, decimal designations? I don't know. But anyway, so microverses, they're basically universes you can only get to through these things called nexuses, which are breaches in these things called space walls, and you have to be microscopic to go through them. Weren't they all technically in some kid's backyard for a long time? I have no idea. The point is, they're in the microverse. Earth is in the macroverse, which is kind of the, the full-sized normal world. Is there a megaverse? Probably. Yes. So this is all going on, and they realize they need to figure out what's emanating from Earth that is causing all this bad stuff. There's some entity that's controlling everything. Some unnamed, unseen, evil, just 
pulling the strings and causing this war. And they traced the signal of it back back to not only Earth, but to Westchester, New York. Karza and Bioship actually go through after the other Micronauts are captured by this big evil entity force. Karza, like we said, he's about six, eight inches, make of that what you will, and shows up in the danger room, kicks the ass of the new mutants, and then fights the X-Men. And oh my god, like for me, this is the point of this miniseries. It is hilarious. It's six inch tall action figures picking fights with full size superheroes. And even when the action figures win, it's never not hilarious. I love it. Yes. I also love that Karza apparently has whatever freaking powers are narratively appropriate. Oh yeah, he's the sonic screwdriver of supervillains. But my favorite of his powers is the fact that he can shoot his hands off, which then turn full size and choke people. And he, he does this like all the freaking time in this series. Doesn't he run out of hands? Maybe he can also do it with his feet, or he shoots his head off and then he just bites people? I don't know. Huh. So, yes, Baron Karza, he's Darth Vader with hands that rocket off and then he has no hands. Except very quickly that ceases to be an issue because Kitty just tries to stop him by phasing through him since he looks electronic, but what actually happens is body swap! A good old body swap plot lines. It's like Freaky Friday, but with Darth Vader and a spunky young mutant. Oh my god, I would watch the hell out of that movie. Yeah, me too. Karza does manage to actually keep the secret for the majority of the series. Kitty's unconscious, trapped in his armored body. He's in Kitty's body and using his mysterious powers to control his previous armored body. And somehow the X-Men don't catch on to the fact that the normally sassy, friendly teenage Kitty Pride is kind of talking like an intergalactic demon lord now. Eventually, Bioship shows up and being much more reasonable than Karza says, hey, here's what's going on. We think it's tied to you. Can you guys give us a hand? And the X-Men say, sure. At which point, Bioship uses his Reduce a Beam, available for six monthly payments of $9.99. Reduce a Beam. To uh, shrink the X-Men down and bring them into the microverse. In the meantime, though, the Micronauts themselves, so you remember they got captured by some big evil entity force before Bioship and Karza left, they're in this weird, crazy dream world where they're basically separated and attacked with all of their various nightmares, these targeted fantasies that are designed to take them out and break their wills. This place is called the Abyss, and it is notable primarily for having some really, really sweet title design, which we will highlight in the as-mentioned post. So, like, for instance, Acro Year, God, that name, sees his wife, his estranged wife, who's about to give birth to their son. It turns out their son is an albino, just like his evil brother that cost him everything good in his life. And the wife is like, I'm going to name him Shaitan, which is the name of said evil albino brother. So he despairs. And then we see Huntar, who's the one that was mutated, get attacked by all these monsters in the abyss. And the way they break his will is just by saying, oh, you're one of us because you're a freak, too. One of us. We accept you. One of us. So each of the Micronauts go through their own personal nightmare sequence and get completely broken in the palace of the entity. And if you were an X-Men reader at this time, he might have looked a little bit familiar. He's wearing an outfit that's appeared in maybe two or three issues of X-Men. Something like that. We've mostly seen it as the gladiatorial armor that Professor Xavier wears when he astrally projects to fight. So that's a thing. Yeah, and sure enough, the now broken down Micronauts get taken to this palace, and the entity puts them in these black and yellow old school X-Men uniforms as his now warrior slaves. We learned that, in fact, not only is the entity modeled after Charles Xavier, he is Charles Xavier because he loses power briefly when the New Mutants almost wake Xavier up. He's asleep at this point, kind of comatose. Yeah, we don't know what the connection is at this point, other than that they're kind of two sides of the same telepathic coin. Yeah, evil Xavier is one of those things that just comes back and comes back in X-Men, and I hate it every single time. Although I will say the first time we saw evil Xavier, back when the Shi'ar thing was first going on, he had a really stylish cape, and that was rad. Well, yeah, no, evil Xavier... Evil Xavier doesn't know how to dress because Evil Xavier is onslaught. Evil Xavier occasionally knows how to dress or has lucky moments, but mostly it's that you're taking a character who's really kind of a dick anyway and pretty morally gray in a lot of ways and then being like, no, no, that's his good half. This is his evil half. If default Xavier is good Xavier who is so thoroughly compartmentalized his evilness, why is he dressing teenagers up in spandex and forcing them to fight supervillains? Shouldn't he be, like, completely beatific and wonderful? I think you're just describing X-Men as a franchise in the Marvel Universe as a universe right there. So, 
the X-Men show up on Baron Karza's homeworld, and at this point, Karza, who is currently manipulating, he's in Katie's body, says, hey, I think I should stay here. I'm really scared because he wants to be able to figure this whole thing out and to operate it dependently. And then basically puppets the Karza armor to be like, yeah, she should totally stay here. That's a great plan. Storm just looks at her and isn't buying it. She's like, the X-Men who faced Brood, Morlocks, and even Dark Phoenix without flinching? I find that hard to believe. We look after our own, Baron. Kitty stays with us. Oh, snap. So they're trying to figure out what to do, and Bioship realizes he senses Arcturus Ran, the commander of the Micronauts. Right, they've got some kind of telepathic link. The characters all figure, well, hey, let's go where they are. Maybe we can help there. And on the way, Bioship basically shuts down, and they crash land into the lawn of what appears to be a giant X-Mansion. They, who are now tiny because they're in sort of Micronaut scale, fight the Micronauts who are at full size who are wearing the black and yellow X-Men costumes. Okay, I don't understand scale in the microverse because, so there's the actual microverse, which is tiny. It's like molecular scale. Mm -hmm. And then there's the six inch tall intermediate stage Micronauts who are like the toy size Micronauts who sometimes interact with the physical macroverse. They're in the microverse. But somehow they're to scale with the stuff happening around Evil Xavier in the same way that the six-inch Micronauts are to scale with, like, the real world. So part of it, I think, is where we are right now is kind of a psychically controlled plane of the entities. Part of it also is that the microverse is not actually microscopic. It's just you have to go be microscopic to go through the portals to the microverse. It's If we were Micronauts readers, this would probably make more sense. As it is, I just have to assume that, yes, this all goes together. It does all make sense. We actually had a couple Micronauts fans offer to explain all of this to us. And after doing some research, we ultimately determined that we do not have time in the length of an episode to even begin to delve into the secrets of the microverse. We encourage you to do so separately. We will happily link to your microverse disambiguations. So yes, they all fight. And unsurprisingly, the people who are far bigger, the Micronauts win and bring the X-Men under the entity's control. We do, however, learn that the little tiny six inch tall people versus full size people fight is still hilarious when you're rooting for the tiny guys. So yeah, at this point, the entity has the combined X-Men micro astronauts brainwash teams go and just like murder a ton of people they're very explicit about this we see kitty phase people into walls and leave them there we see the x-men just straight up slaughtering people and that xavier is effectively committing genocide on other planets at the same time well the the entity is this other part of xavier you know it's part of xavier and man i'm gonna get back to this but this pisses me off really bad so while this is all going on, Kitty has regained control, and she's she's still in Baron Karz's body and trying to essentially impersonate him because she's working with the chief scientist, a dude creatively named Degrade, to, you know, try to de-escalate this whole big war that's going on. She's trying. She's not really passing as him very effectively. She's also trying to figure out what the battle armor can do, which leads to the great line out of nowhere, I've become a rocket-powered centaur! Good kid. You know, she's thinking at that point, yes, strike that one off the bucket list. (laughs) Now that's on my bucket list. At the same time with Kitty's actual body that Baron Karza is in. God, this is confusing. Karza occupied Kitty has been by far and away the most unambiguously cheerfully bloodthirsty of the mind controlled X-Men, largely because it's Karza, not Kitty. And so he's like, yeah, slaughter. It's Tuesday. The Entity is into this. The Entity is really into this. The Entity is, in fact, into this in ways that it is specifically, absolutely, and completely inappropriate to be into this with a 14-year-old or even an evil overlord in the body of a 14-year-old. Yeah, and nothing happens here as far as I can tell. Cars is like, hey, it's not my body, but, you know, this would still be a huge insult. It's really creepy, and I wish I could say it's the creepiest thing that happens in this series. Yeah, apparently Charles Xavier's It is just straight up super molesty. It's not played as a gag, but it's not exactly played as quite as appalling as I feel like it should be because it gets a lot darker and a lot more explicit later on. And for me, that's a really big tonal break from the rest of the series. And yeah, we'll we'll definitely talk more about that. But in the meantime, Xavier does manage to find a way astrally to sort of infiltrate the entity's mind. This is good, Xavier. Uh, yes, and distract him. Uh, while that's going on, Karza in Kitty's body just stabs him in the back. And while that's happening, the X-Men and the Micronauts are able to recover psychologically enough to start escaping and figure, well, we don't know how we're going to fix all this stuff, but we absolutely need to. We find out explicitly during the confrontation between Xavier and the Entity that the Entity is, in fact, explicitly, specifically part of Xavier. It's not just a dark reflection. It is Xavier's dark side, which makes the creeping on Kitty thing so much creepier. 
And he gets the opportunity to be creepier than that because in his confrontation with good Xavier, he switches their bodies. Yet another body swap. We're now at two in this series. Leaving the entity happily at home in Westchester with the new mutants. And so what he does, because one of his things we've seen is to sort of possess people and take them over and turn them into these violent thralls, he starts with Daniel Moonstar. Who's been in there sitting with Xavier trying to get him to wake up because he's basically comatose or appears to be. And he, I I mean, how do we describe this, Rachel? He functionally psychically rapes her. I mean, he basically disables her from the fight by causing her to have nonstop orgasms. And at that point, she's his slave. This character is, I believe, 16 years old at this point. This is not subtextual. This is not subtle. It's really clear in the art, and it's really clear in the narration what's happening. I haven't read a lot of Micronauts, but the big explosions and the planets getting destroyed and the big galaxy at war stuff, again, seems like it's in keeping with what I know of the tone of that book. This particular aspect of the story feels like a pretty major deviation from the tone of everything else in the crossover and both books. It's really disturbing, and for me at least, it really colors the rest of the series. You know, I I do agree with you there, because overall, I actually really, really like the X-Men and Micronauts miniseries. I think it's really high stakes, it's really strange, it's really exciting, the characters are well done, but then there's this big thing that happens, and it's kind of hard to get past that. Someone should have taken a look at this script at some point and just said, no, you can get from point A to point B narratively without this thing happening. Don't do that. That's the other thing that blows my mind. This is Comics Code Authority approved. Right. And we have literally millions of people dying, one attempted rape and one actual rape, and it's CCA approved. What's what's going on here? Both of those of teenagers by an adult. Exactly. But that being said, there is still a big fight to finish. So what then happens is the entity, who's essentially getting more and more powerful, attacks the Enigma Force that's holding the entire microverse together. At which point it blows up all the planets on the perimeter, incinerates, degrade, and kills millions of people. Once again with the mass murder. How is Xavier allowed to go back home and keep being the leader of the X-Men after this? I mean, if you look at it like this is the inverted dark side of his normal good side, then that must make his normal good side really, really good, I guess. But his normal good side is kind of a jackass. Also, and more significantly, Dark Phoenix ate one occupied planet, one occupied planet, and had to die for that. And yet... This is literally part of Charles Xavier. He's not possessed. This is, you know, a part of his personality that just stays subsumed. And he just gets to go back being in charge of a school of a bunch of teenagers. And this is really upsetting me. It is. So, obviously, this crossover is, is not going to end up discussing the uh, the moral grays of this situation in any degree of detail. So, let's just go back into what actually happens. Yes, indeed. So, as the microverse is being destroyed, the X-Men head back to the X-Mansion in the macroverse. At which point we see that Karza has used Bioship's technology to give Kitty's body a new costume. I love that. Like, I don't know if it's her residual consciousness or if he just knows. I guess that this is the point where if you're playing the game, you take a sip of someone else's drink. Steal a drink. And so there's a big fight as Xavier infiltrates the Entity's mind yet again. His body, meanwhile, is dying. The Entity's body that Xavier has been swapped into. And so what he does is to get into his own physical body and give himself a stroke and play sort of psychic chicken with the Entity, who then flees back into his original body, which is in the process of dying, and thus dies. Except that that's still half of Xavier's personality, right? I'm not really sure how that works in the same way that we never really find out exactly why the entity manifested when the entity did, but, you know. Because know. Charles Xavier is a dick, and occasionally his evil side just goes off and has horrifying adventures? Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, onslaught, dude. Onslaught. <laughs> and at that point, Xavier, yeah, he does one of his speeches. The conflict between good and evil is never over, Danielle. The entity may have been vanquished, but the potential for his creation still exists within me as within us all. No, no, dude. Not all of us. That is the price we pay for being human. I only wish I could atone for his atrocities. If there is any consolation, it must come from having faced that fundamental evil and denied it. Dude, no. I reject this so hard. 
So yeah, that's X-Men and Micronauts. So as far as this one, like I said, overall, and I, and I feel like we've been very negative in talking about the really messed up parts of this series. Overall, I think it's really, really good. It's a fun story with absolutely appalling moral implications. If they would just take out about three or four pages of the story, it would go to instant classic status in my mind. And I maybe like address the genocide thing a little. You know, I feel like that at least fits the general tone of the plot. And the Micronauts comic, as I understand, does feature a lot of really dark stuff like that. My main argument with that isn't that it happens in the story, because I agree that it does seem to be fitting the tone of the comic that they're appearing in. It's the ramifications of that degree of genocide versus the ramifications of the Dabari and Dark Phoenix. Well, fair enough, fair enough. But That bugs me. So would we recommend X-Men and Teen Titans? Would we recommend X-Men and Micronauts? In both cases, I think conditionally, but for somewhat different reasons. X-Men and Teen Titans is a lot of fun. It's outside of continuity. It's extremely madcap. Isn't going to give you any particularly useful grounding in anything, but it's a lot of fun. X-Men and Micronauts is, in general, a well-written series, but it's a well-written series with some really, really, really big problems that I think may end up being deal-breakers for some readers. If you're the type of reader who can just sort of mentally shelve bits that are just super not okay and just focus on the rest, I think this could be a great series. If not, you know, sadly, it's one that's probably best to be skipped. Yeah, you can read the first issue. Yes, exactly. Uh, I think the first and second issue, we don't have anything truly horrifying happening. Well, except for a lot of death. Eh, you know, it's only death. This is America. Death is fine. As long as you don't swear. Exactly. Um, So, let's go into questions. All right, sounds like a plan. So, Spousal Orb, which is a really great great and strange name, asks on our website, where can I find more X stories with developed female leads, specifically Jean Grey? Oh, you are singing my song, Spousal Orb. Well, there's a storm ongoing right now. But that's not exactly specifically an X-book. It's really focused on Storm outside of the context of the X-Men. Older Excalibur is fantastic for that. It's a team that tends to be pretty gender-balanced with a lot of really, really good female characters and a lot of emphasis on friendship between women. I think any era where Storm and Jean Grey are both on the X-Men, you'll see a lot of that. And I think a fair lot of it during the X-Men in Australia arc. Let's see. And the eras of Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants that we're in right now in the podcast are both really strong for that as well. For Jean Grey specifically, your best shots are actually going to be one-shots and outside stories. We've mentioned specifically a lot of all-ages Jean Grey, just because we have the young daughter of a listener who's who's a huge Jean fan. We've been trying to find more stories for her. She is fantastic in X-Men Season 1. You see a lot of her, a lot of really great Jean stories in X-Men First Class. It's the comic, not the movie. And there's a really, really terrific X-Men Origins one-shot Jean Grey that I recommend, again, very, very highly. I'm also really looking forward to G. Willow Wilson's upcoming run on adjectiveless X-Men, the all-female team. I think that's going to be stellar. Oh my god, yes, absolutely. And in terms of individual characters, the X-23 miniseries is great. And it's, again, a really good book, both for a female main character and some really, really good friendships between women and girls. So to take it back to the Storm series, though, that is a book you should be buying. If you want to see more female leads, if you want to see more diverse casts, like this book is a great one to buy in physical form because that's what counts towards sales totals and just vote with your dollars for more stuff like this. It's a quality book and I'd love to see more. There's some mid-90s stuff where Jean becomes a much more central character and a much more a character and much more of a leadership position in the X-Men. And I think it's stuff that's coming out usually concurrent with the animated series. That's an era I'm not as detailedly familiar with, so I can't really give you specific issue hooks, but I will keep an eye out and we'll keep posting those either on the blog or mentioning them in the podcast as they come up. So next, Tim C. asks via email, how are X-Men operations funded? I always assumed that the Fantastic Four had income from Reed's parents and the Avengers were funded through a combination of Stark and S.H.I.E.L.D. money. But what about the X-Teams? Does Xavier have an inherited fortune? How is it administered since his death? Is there a trust of some sort that funds the schools? So the comic hasn't gone into a lot of detail about those later questions, but yes, Xavier uh, was, I should say, independently wealthy. Um, He had a a huge fortune, which was what started the school and what maintained it for a long time. But Angel and Emma Frost are also extremely wealthy. They've certainly bankrolled the school at various points. Um, Um, I believe that at least in the Wolverine and the X-Men era, the school is bankrolled almost entirely by Worthington Industries. And actually, Wolverine's own fortune, which he apparently has as well. He does gambling in space. And a lot of the fact that they have so much cool stuff comes from the fact that the Shi'ar, who are longtime allies of the X-Men, have donated a ton of super advanced technology to them. Including their homicidal sentient robot danger room. Huzzah! Which is my favorite. 
Uh, and then there are also characters like M and Sunspot and Forge, and there are a surprising amount of wealthy X-Men, but I'd say primarily it's Xavier's fortune, Angel, and Emma Frost. Now, as for what's happening now that Xavier's dead, that's actually the focus, well, part of the focus of a current storyline called The Last Will and Testament of Charles Xavier. Well, it's tangented off from that, but that's the nominal frame of it. Yeah, and so they haven't gotten to the part of the will yet that says who the school goes to. Everyone's assuming Cyclops because Xavier didn't know he was going to go Dark Phoenix. Although we've also found out that uh, Xavier at the time of his death was legally married to Mystique, so who the hell even knows? So we'll see what happens with that. In the meantime, we are definitely out of time. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland and produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the co-host of Welcome to That Whole Thing and Full of Sith. You can find us every Sunday at rachelandmiles.com on iTunes and on Stitcher with new episodes. And check out rachelandmiles.com for additional content, visual companions to every episode, written posts, art, and more. And all of this is made possible by our generous Patreon supporters. This podcast is completely listener-supported, and we are super grateful for you guys for doing so. If you want to become a supporter, head to rachelandmiles.com and check out the link at the top. Next week in Uncanny X-Men, Earth-616 goes 8591. And Claremont's all-new, all-different X-Men celebrate nearly 100 issues of Thunderbird being dead by beating up his little brother. See you then. See you then.